The Vision app is the best place to find a growing range of homegrown, on-demand audio to help you look to God daily. You can listen to Faith and Fostering with Christians chatting about foster care in an Australian context. Plus, be encouraged by Pastor Terry Nightingale's four-minute devotions with new episodes added each week in the free Vision Christian Media app. If you don't already have the app on your smartphone or tablet, download it now from vision.org.au slash app. Vision.org.au slash app. Vision. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Now, at the end of this month, a very significant date, the 31st of October, and as you know, it's the anniversary of a lot of different events that have happened historically that have shaped who we are as Australians. Well, there's one significant event on the 31st of October, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so we're talking about an event that has significantly shaped the whole world. The Protestant Reformation was the 16th century religious, political, intellectual and cultural upheaval that splintered Europe. It was a crisis of faith and practice. Well, the structures and beliefs that changed would define Europe and the way of history in the West would develop in the modern era. In Northern and Central Europe, reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin challenged papal authority and questioned the ways that the church defined Christian practice. The disruption triggered wars, persecutions and the so-called counter-reformation, which was a forceful response to the rise of the Protestants. So we're going to talk about some of those issues from the Reformation today and what these might mean to us today as Christian believers. And what a pleasure it is to welcome a special guest, pastor and evangelist Josh Williamson is joining us. Josh has pastored churches here in Australia and overseas in Scotland and serves as the state director and evangelist for OAC Ministries in Queensland. You'll be familiar with the work of Open Air Campaigners. Well, Josh is also an endorsed evangelist with the Luis Palau Next Generation Alliance, and he's part of the leadership of the evangelism outfit called Operation 513. A special welcome back to 2020 to you, Josh Williamson. Thank you very much for having me. Well, Josh, uh, I know that this is like a favorite subject of yours, and uh, you've studied it widely, and uh, you love to reflect on it. The Protestant Reformation, a 500th anniversary coming up at the end of the month, this is actually something we do need to stop and reflect on because it is such a significant anniversary. Oh, absolutely. I don't think we actually realize in the West, and especially in our own country, just how much of an impact the Protestant Reformation has had upon us. The freedoms we enjoy, the theology that we uh, readily can learn, the Bibles in our own language are all fruits of the Reformation. So we need to remember what God has done in the past. Because when we think about the Reformation and the Bible, which is really the central issue here, because the Bible uh, really made an incredible impact. And we'll talk about some of those sorts of uh, changes that came about because the Bible took a new level of prominence. But around about that time, uh, and it was just a little earlier, uh, that the, the printing press brought the Bible uh, alive and uh, enabled people who were in the normal marketplace in their homes to be able to have access to it. This was something that was happening concurrently at the time of the Reformation. Absolutely. Uh, the printing press was really the the means and the tools that God used to get the Reformation underway. Before that time, any book had to be written out by hand, and it was beyond 
access to the common man, but the printing press mass-produced the scripture. Again, the first uh, book ever produced on the printing press was the Bible. Granted, it was in Latin, but it was a good starting point to say we can print the Word of God and people can access it very easily. Uh, Let me put you to the test here, uh, because the Bible that was being read in the church at the time, and of course it's the Catholic Church, but it was the church if we trace our roots back, that's where we all come from essentially. Uh, So they had the Latin Bible uh, in those days, and for a thousand years, uh, the Latin Vulgate, the Bible that was translated by Jerome, it was the Bible that everybody read. And around about that time, uh, there was opportunity with the printing press and with other reformers to get the Bible into different languages. Uh, What do you think of when you reflect on uh, on the Bible at the time and the way that it began to become popular among people in their own language? Well, the challenge was, I guess, before the printing press was that you had only the priests who had access to the Bible in Latin. And the problem is many of them didn't even understand the Latin. So you can't feed the flock. You can't uh, teach God's word if you don't understand the Bible. And that annoyed some of the early uh, reformers. Now, it must be said when we say Reformation, we're not talking about one monolithic event. There was Reformations might be a better term. And you had people like Wycliffe in the 14th century who were going around saying, we need to take this Latin Bible and put it into the language of the people. And he was the first one to put it into English. And he put the New Testament into English so people could understand it, the common man could hear it and learn it. And it is vital that the word of God be put into the language of the people. Otherwise, how can we know God? I mean, in Second Timothy, we know that Paul told Timothy, you have known the scriptures from childhood, which makes you wise unto salvation. If we want people to be wise unto salvation, we've got to give them the very thing that reveals salvation, the word of God, the scripture. And of course, the Latin version of the Bible, uh, the one that Jerome had translated, it was written in a, I mean, I don't and uh, have never studied Latin. But from my understanding of the history, Latin was just the most beautiful, poetic language. And for the scholars to be studying Latin, that was just the penultimate level of, of scholarship. And uh, and really, it did raise the church and the Bible at the time to, to significant heights. But then to translate that into English, as Wycliffe sought to do, uh, was to put you know, all of that wonderful poetic language and uh, and to to trample it underfoot and, and to put it into a common language like English. And that was really a challenge. Oh, it definitely was a challenge. Uh, the, the Latin was beautiful. And even if you hear Latin done today, it sounds wonderful. If you hear Latin done by an Australian, it's often really bad because we put a good Aussie accent on it. <laughs> uh, but the Latin at the time, but even the Latin wasn't the original. That was a translation from the Greek and the Hebrew, and the reformers wanted to go back to the sources because the Latin Vulgate did contain translational errors. But when you had Wycliffe come along, he he said, let's put this in the language of the common man because it doesn't really matter how beautiful something might sound if you can't understand it. What's the point of having all these words of God in a language you can't comprehend when people are dying daily without knowing the God of the Scripture? So Wycliffe said, it doesn't matter. We need to put it into the vulgar tongue, the common language, so that man might know who God is. And to do that, you need the Bible in English. Now, let's not just talk history today. Let's bring what we're talking about as an historical event 500 years ago. uh, And we'll keep coming back to this too. What does this mean for us today? Because today we have the Bible a trustworthy document, and all these different translations that you might be thinking of, uh, these have come from these days back to the original languages. And some of those errors and mistakes that were passed down in the Latin Bible, they've been fixed. 
So when you stand on the street, Josh Williamson, with wearing your open air campaigners uh, hat and uh, and you're you're out on the streets and you're preaching from the Bible. Uh, this is an accurate translation that you preach from, and you are bringing the word of the Lord. Absolutely, and we need to be faithful in our proclamation of the word because any preacher has no authority, really, without the Bible. It doesn't matter what I think or what I say. It doesn't matter how much theology I might have. If it's not based on the Scripture, it's a complete waste of time. So we need to be faithful and accurate when we proclaim the word so we can thank the Reformation they saw fit to bring that accurate Bible down to us. So when we stand up and preach, we can say... We've got God's word and you can know it. And isn't it an interesting thing to talk about the authority? Because you can stand on the streets and you can open the Bible and you can talk about various passages there and you can speak with authority. Because authority was one of those issues for the Reformation because the authority was in the hands of the clergy who were the educated class who could read the Bible, who could read the Latin Vulgate, and they were the ones who were making the rules. Uh, But when you put that into the hands of the common people, uh, the common people finally get a chance to see for themselves what's happening there, and then they can actually judge the differences between what's right and what's wrong. And that's one of the benefits of of knowing what the authority is. And absolutely, because if you just have the Bible tied up in the language of the educated classes and no one else knows it, it makes it very easy to control the population. But when you have the Word of God in the common language, in in the common tongue, People can say we can know God and understand God for ourselves, and it's a real liberating thing. It's a freedom thing. And that was one of the motivations that drove someone like William Tyndale. Uh, William Tyndale, who, you know, if if you've ever read the King James Bible, you've read 70% of of Tyndale's New Testament. But Tyndale was having dinner one night with some Roman Catholic uh, clergyman who said we'd be better without the Bible as long as we can have the Pope. And that really annoyed Tyndale to the point where he said, my mission's going to be to make the man in the field, the plowboy who works in the field, to know more of the scripture than any clergyman ever will. And he went and translated it. And what happened was the English church was lit aflame with people grabbing the scripture and saying, we can know God ourselves. We do not need a mediator between us and Jesus. We have Jesus as the mediator between God and us. So we don't need the clergy to tell us what God's word is. God's word speaks for itself. And here we have really controversial things because when you use words like control and the clergy and we'll remember from history that it was the Pope who was really above the government and oftentimes the Pope uh, was in charge of the armed forces and so you have those issues with crusades where it was the Pope who was making orders to uh, send soldiers into battle and wipe out Uh, peoples. Uh, So control was a very, very important issue. And so to have the Bible in the hands of the common people changed the way that control began to unfold and people all of a sudden had access to the Bible. Absolutely, because you cannot shackle and control a people spiritually if they have the source of spiritual truth, if they have the Bible. If a man can sit down and read the Bible for himself and say, this is what God wants me to know, then it doesn't matter what lies any clergyman in a collar may say. Now, I I speak as a clergyman. I'm an ordained Baptist minister. I speak as someone who's been educated. But even myself and anything I say must be tested by the word of God. And we see that pattern in Scripture. When Paul preaches, the Bereans went and tested what he said against the Scripture. And if they're going to test the Apostle Paul, they certainly need to test any pope or priest or pastor or evangelist. They need to go back to the source of Scripture. And when you open the Scripture, There's liberty. There's freedom. We are no longer under control of any man, 
but rather we see what God wants us to say. Now, that's not to say it's not important to have pastors and not in the church. God, in his word, says that he is ordained under shepherds to serve under Christ. But those men are quite simply servants of Christ. They have no control. It's God who controls and God who works through those pastors. And interesting, isn't it? Because if we bring this into our modern age, here we are in 2017, and uh, to talk about uh, being under scrutiny of the Bible means that people who are sitting in church who have their Bible open, whether that's on an electronic device or whether it's the uh, the old technology that I still like to use, uh, the open book, uh, really you've got the preacher in the pulpit uh, or even the evangelist on the streets and they are subject to what is being taught in the Bible. And the common people, those of us who are sitting in the pews, uh, can hold to account the pastor, the preacher, the evangelist, uh, for the things that they say. And so you have this wonderful tension where the leader needs to submit to the word of God and the people have an opportunity to keep the leader under scrutiny and you have this wonderful way of maintaining truth. Absolutely, and no preacher is above the word of God. The problem occurs when someone starts saying my word is equal with the scripture or my interpretation of the Bible is authoritative. No, the scripture must be authoritative. God's word is authoritative and we test all things and hold fast to that which is true. And that's why it's vital for anyone in church life to be Bible reading people, to test everything. Even if you love the pastor, and I hope you do love your pastor, test everything he says by the word of God. And if it goes against the scripture, go with the Bible, not with the man. And any godly pastor would have to be able to say, I submit to the word of God first and foremost. Life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. It's Neil with you. It's the Tuesday edition of 2020. Our special guest is pastor and evangelist Josh Williamson from Open Air Campaigners, OAC Ministries. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. Let's take a call. Josh, let's hear from Alex in Melbourne. Hello, Alex. Welcome along. Alex. Hello. Hi, Alex. How are you doing? Oh, good, thanks. Uh, yes, uh, uh Regarding this uh, conversation, uh, it's very important in uh, this. This what what, we're, what you're talking about there, John chapter twelve verse um, forty-seven. If any man hear my words and believe not, I judge him not, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judges him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And in in Psalm 138, uh, chapter 2, uh, it says, uh, 138, verse 2, I should say, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name which uh, to me uh, speaks volumes of how important the word is and that we should all uh, study diligently and and live that way. Thank you. Okay, good stuff. Uh, your thoughts for Alex, Josh? I'll just say amen. We should be people of the book. We need to be gospel-saturated people, and to do that we need to know the Bible. Uh, gospel-saturated people, if people were gospel-saturated uh, back in the 16th century, uh, perhaps 
uh, we would have avoided some of the contrasts uh, for what looked be to be corruption uh, and to then those who needed to try and address the corruption. And so uh, so gospel saturation, that's an important element, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, when you think back to someone like Martin Luther, his intent was never to leave the Roman Catholic Church. He wanted reformation. He wanted to return to the authority of God's word. And because they weren't gospel-saturated, that's uh, why it all fell apart. That's why there was conflict. That's why there was division. Because you had someone like Luther and the other reformers saying, the Bible is God's word. It's authoritative. We need to go with what it says. And on the other camp, you had people saying, no, we have popes and councils and traditions, and we have to go with what they say. Uh, if we'd been gospel-saturated from the beginning, I don't think we would have seen the Protestant Reformation. Thank you so much to Alex from Melbourne. Our talkback line remains open on 1-800-316-316. You might have your own thoughts, or you might have your own question about the Reformation and, of course, the 500th anniversary coming up at the end of this month. When we talk about Catholics and Protestants today, uh, now, you're, as you mentioned, you're a Baptist pastor. Uh, Baptists are firmly on the Protestant side, and uh, sometimes there'll be people in the Baptist church who will be thinking that that, uh, those on the Catholic side somehow or other are caught up in the same sorts of corruption that was there 500 years ago. And with an anniversary that's coming up like this, Josh, uh, some people will be looking at the history and trying to pass a judgment one way or another. How do you come to grips with uh, how you see the Catholics and the Protestants today? I think if we look at uh, what divided us at the Reformation, we see there was a big division over things such as the gospel and the authority of scripture. If we fast forward 500 years to now, we say what divides Catholics today and also Protestants, I think we still see those same divisions. Now, the outworking of those divisions are different. We no longer have uh, armed conflict between the Protestant camp and the Catholic camp. We can live peacefully next to our Roman Catholic neighbours. They're not going to burn our fence down. We're not going to kill their dog. It's not going to happen that way. But there's still this theological divide. And if someone reads the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you will see that there's still this massive divide over if salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, or if works have some sort of involvement. Uh, There's questions over the whole issue of was the sacrifice of Christ sufficient on the cross or does he need to be sacrificed daily in the Mass? So there's still this divide that's there theologically. There's still this concern that's between the Protestants and the the Catholics of the issue of authority. What is authoritative? Is it God's word or do we have the magisterium, the traditions and the Pope? So there's still division there, but the outworking of how we deal with those divisions have definitely changed. And I think that outworking, uh, the change there has been much better than armed conflict. And how do you reflect, Josh, on the way that actually at this time Catholics and Protestants work together because there are some common enemies in the sense of people who are from the secular side. So we can take Protestant, Catholic, and then there's this sort of secular humanism. It's an ideology that brings and it's its own attack against Christianity, whether it is Catholic or Protestant. And you've got Catholics and Protestants as co-belligerents together, as standing side by side, even though there might be some remaining theological differences. Uh, there's a unity there which says Jesus is still the Christ. He is Lord of all. There's definitely... Uh a time where there is that co-belligerency and the secular world, when it looks at the church, it doesn't define, you know, Baptist, Presbyterian, Protestant, Catholic. It just says Christendom. Basically, you're all Christian. You all believe the same thing, which, you know, shows a bit of ignorance on their behalf. But then when you come to cultural issues such as, say, same-sex marriage or abortion, you'll find that Protestants and Catholics often can have an agreement on those issues that it shouldn't happen. 
that abortion is wrong, that marriage is between a man and a woman. And we can have a co-belligerency there where we can stand as one body saying, when I use the term body, they're not theologically, uh, as one group saying, you know, this is wrong. The problem then boils down to how do we deal with these sort of sins? How do we get forgiven for those sins? And that, that moment is where we part ways because the Protestant will say we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. The Catholic can't affirm that. So we divide on the how do we deal with the sin, how do we have forgiveness for sin, but on moral issues there's often a lot of unity. We're taking calls, 1-800-316-316. Let's hear from Dave in Victoria. Hello, Dave. Welcome along. Hello. Dave. Yeah. Uh, enjoying the, your conversation. Um, sometimes you meet people from different uh, religions that believe that Jesus was not God but was created. But when you see the Old Testament and New Testament, especially in Genesis, when, you know, it said, let us create man in our own image, and right through the Old New Testament, it's it's there to say that Jesus was God. But you, you'll get other people and say, no, 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 he was created. I'd like your thoughts on the matter. Uh, your thoughts, Josh? I affirm that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. He is eternal. He is uncreated. Um, he has always existed. He's the second person of the Trinity. Uh, Jesus had no beginning. He will have no end. Uh, so I have no problems affirming that Jesus is fully God. Now, you do definitely have uh, false religious teachers, such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, that would teach that Jesus had a beginning, that uh, he was somehow created in time and space, and that he is lesser than God. I, I think such teaching is heresy. It's not taught in the Scripture. Uh, the Bible makes it clear that the God of the Bible is triune, Trinity, one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all eternally existent, co-eternal, and they always will be. So we must affirm the deity of the Lord Jesus. Thank you so much to Dave from Victoria. And just before we take another call, of course, uh, the interesting aspect there is that both Catholics and Protestants agree that, as just as you've said, that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, one God, three persons, and dating right back to those early ecumenical creeds where Protestants and Catholics uh, will say these things reflect the teachings of the Scripture. Absolutely. Protestants and Catholics have to be Trinitarian in their nature. That's their core beliefs. So we have agreement in that aspect of who God is and how God reveals himself. So there's a point of unity. That's why people like Luther want to reform the church and say, we, we have these core agreements. Let, let's agree everywhere, everywhere else as well. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. You might like to contribute to our conversation. Let's hear from Robin in Mount Morgan. Hello, Robin. Robin, are you with us? Oh, yes. Uh, Robin, what are your thoughts today? Oh, okay. Um, yes, I, I just, it's amazing. Um, I had um, just this conversation with my Catholic friend, as we often do on Saturday. Uh, there's a miracle in this as well. A guy walked in, <laughs> he's a Christian, and more than that, he was a minister, and um, he was called up to Mount Morgan for um, just to suss out the spiritual atmosphere. <laughs> he, he walked right into us having a, a bit of a, a very heated discussion about exactly this between Catholics um version of our scripture and, and and you know what my my version anyway and um we were talking about constant constantine 
So it seems that from Constantine, up until Constantine, the church was persecuted, and, and then after Constantine, the church was more or less compromised, married to the world. And, um, and her reaction was, but yes, isn't it better that people, that Christians didn't die anymore and that they could live in safety? Well, I think that's very much the point because I think we're coming back to those days where we need to be prepared to stand up for truth no matter what it costs. And, and I really think we're in for a, a new reformation, really back to the Bible as the source of revelation. We need to get it straight from the Bible to understand from the Bible from the Bible. So, and uh, I must say, Neil, I might have, I might not have to ring so often now because this guy that's come to town, he's really full on. He's great, (laughs) and um, we're going to have some fellowship finally. I feel very good for you, Robin. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. Your thoughts for Robin on some of the things she's sharing there, Josh? I definitely think we need a new reformation. We need to get back to the scripture, back to the authority of God's word. Um, Fanciful ideas, feelings, whatever doesn't mean anything. Compared to the scripture, so we must get back to the Bible. We must get back to the truth. Uh, persecution can sometimes strengthen the church. It can also sometimes nearly wipe out the church. Compromise, worldliness in the church can sometimes allow freedom for missions and evangelism, but at the same time, it can sometimes nearly kill kill the church as well as we become compromised. So I guess there's no one size fits all to what was the best time in church history. But uh, no matter what, we need to keep going back to the scripture and letting that be our authority. Thank you so much to Robin from Mount Morgan. Just a couple of minutes out from the news. Uh, Interesting when we talk about these things and how they affect the church. But from the Reformation, we'd understand, Josh, that it's not just the church, but whole nations uh, that are affected by your understanding of what authority comes from the Bible. And uh, just in the the lead up to the the news, uh, your thoughts on, on the way that the Bible actually has shaped even Western civilization. Well, Western civilization is very much influenced by the Bible. I think uh, something you mentioned earlier about uh, the Pope having control over governments, the separation of powers of church and state is not something that's come from America. That was actually a Protestant ideal. John Calvin said there needs to be a separation of powers, that the church is not the state. It doesn't govern the affairs of the state, but rather it is to be the conscience of the state. And likewise, the state isn't to tell us what we're to do in the church. So we see that in Western countries today. We see this separation of powers, which is a good thing. So pastors don't sit in Parliament and tell you how to run the country. But they can say this is what God's Word says and this is how politicians should act. And at the same time, politicians don't come into the pulpit and say this is how you've got to vote and this is what you've got to believe. So separation of powers, the freedoms we enjoy politically, are all fruits of the Reformation. And, of course, when we talk about nations and secular governments, when we talk about governance uh, that happens, uh, according to a biblical principle, really we were talking about a rule of law here, which was one of those issues in Europe where uh, governments came under the rule of law, not the Greek democratic system where uh, there was uh, like governments above the law. But it, but this is what ca- happens with the freedom in the scriptures, isn't it? That this rule of law is applies to everyone. Yeah, one of the battle cries was lex rex, the law is king that everyone has to submit to the law, be it king or peasant. It doesn't matter who you are, the law is king. And that was a, a gain that came from reformers. They really popularized it. Now, there was traces of it earlier with King Alfred the Great, for instance, and his dooms, who said the Ten Commandments should govern the nation. But if we look at it, it keeps going back to the authority of Scripture. God has given us a book on how we should live, how we should act, and how nations should run. Before we take any more calls, Josh, One of the things that we would appreciate from the Reformation is that the gospel, the good news, uh, all of a sudden had a new impetus and the masses who were not 
familiar with this good news, all of a sudden were being impacted by it. It was definitely a rediscovery of the gospel. I must be careful to say that. It was a rediscovery. It wasn't a creating of a new gospel. Uh, As they went back to the scripture, they discovered the truth and said, the people need to hear this. So, for instance, in Luther's Germany, you had men like Tetzel going around saying, if you paid money, you can get to go to heaven. All your sins can be forgiven if you give a certain amount of money and indulgence will be given to you. And Luther went, that's not what the Bible says. The just shall live by faith. And he began to preach. And other reformers picked up on that. And they didn't confine their preaching just to the churches. You had people like William Farrell in Geneva who would go out into the open air and preach. And as an open air evangelist, I love men like William Farrell. He was a fiery man who stood in the town square and proclaimed the gospel. He would actually even have open air debates. He'd say to people like the priest or the bishop, you come out and we'll debate Reformation doctrine. If I win, I get to go into your pulpit and preach to your people. And Farrell always won. And he'd go in and he'd preach the gospel and people would be converted. The word of God went to the common man out in the streets. Now, a common misconception of the Reformation is that we often think the churches were full back then. But people like Professor Rodney Stark have shown that church attendance wasn't that high during the Reformation time. But as the people grabbed a hold of the gospel and they got the scripture in their own languages, churches began to fill. But it took preachers going out into the fields under the blue sky and declaring the gospel for them to come in. And that's what you do today. You go out onto the streets and, in fact, you're leading a team uh, and you're inspiring so many others in different contexts to actually be the sort of person who's not afraid to stand on a street corner and to open a conversation with passers-by. And that's something that, in some ways, I think perhaps if we are reflecting on recent history, took a bit of a dip, became less popular, but now that popularity is on the rise. It is definitely on the rise, especially amongst uh, younger men. Uh, Those under 40 would be the majority of those in the open air. And it is encouraging to see that you've got all these young guys saying, we've got something of supreme worth. We know the Lord Jesus and we have his word, which he reveals himself to us. Look at all these people in our society that don't know Christ. They're not coming to our churches. They're not coming into our events. So we need to take the word of God to them. In many ways, we are standing on the shoulders of the reformers. We're following in their footsteps. We're taking calls on 1-800-316-316. If you'd like to join in our conversation, you might have a contribution to make. You might have a question to ask. Well, let's hear from Robin in Cabramatta in Sydney. Hello, Robin. Welcome along. Hello. Robin, what are your thoughts on our conversation today? I'm faint. I'm faint. Well, what's your thoughts anyway, Robin? Are you there? I can't hear you. Okay, Robin, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can now. Okay. What are your thoughts, Robin? I've turned down the radio. That's a good idea. Yep. Are you there? I can't hear you. Okay, Robin, can you hear me now? It is yeah, always wise turning now. down that radio. Well, there is about a 10-second difference. I just want to throw a banner in the works. I mean, not, not deliberately, but it will be so. I don't go along with this idea of the three, um, you know, the Trinity as the three-person God. I heard you say that Jesus was the second person of the Trinity. For me, he is more than that. He is much more than the second person. He is God himself. He is God incarnate. The word in Isaiah says, um, the son shall be called the mighty God, the everlasting father. And it also, he says that he is the first and the last. He's not the second person. He is the first and the last the great I am. So to me, and, and in Colossians 2.9, it says that he is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That doesn't say second person to me. It says that he is God. 
God. He is the highest name in heaven and on earth, but the highest name in heaven over all other names. Robin, I think you'll find uh, that both Josh and myself will be very quick to affirm that Jesus is God. But when we talk about the Trinity, we do talk about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And uh, and there's different ways that people have had disputes about how you actually see the Trinity. But as complicated and as incomprehensible as it may seem, we are talking about one God. And yes, affirming that Jesus Christ is God, and we would see him as the second person of the Trinity. And uh, just to clear that up, and I think you might have something to add to that, Josh. Yeah, absolutely. We definitely affirm that Jesus Christ is God. But what we do not affirm is that Jesus is the Father. We do not affirm that he is uh, the Father God. We say he, when we say second person of the Trinity, we're affirming his positional statement as the Son. For instance, in Hebrews chapter 1, it tells us that the Father speaks of the Son, and he says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So we have the Father affirming the Son as God. As for Colossians 2 uh, verse 9, in Jesus the fullness of deity or the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, the question we have to ask is, is what is the Godhead? The Godhead as defined is the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are all God. There is one God. God the Father is fully God. God the Son is fully God. God the Holy Spirit is fully God. They are co-eternal and co-equal, one God expressed in three persons. Thank you so much to Robin for your input today here on 2020. And our talkback line remains open. And uh, not that we're having a discussion or a dispute about the Trinity today, but it might be a good conversation for another day to really get into some of the details and understanding the persons of the Trinity, uh, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We'll keep that one up our sleeves for another day. Let's come back to something which was pretty significant about behavior. And uh, we were talking in the last half hour about the the Latin Vulgate uh, that was written by Jerome. There's one issue in there, and uh, you picked up on some of the differences that came from that Latin translation of the Scriptures that were corrected at the time of the Reformation as people were becoming more familiar. And that was over the word repentance, because as we'll know, John the Baptist was the one who was the forerunner uh, to point the way to, to Jesus who was coming, and his word was repent. But in my understanding and doing a little research in the lead up to our conversation today, Josh, that word repentance from the Latin was translated for people who were a part of the Roman church at the time to do with penitence, the idea of then doing penance, which led to the idea that you would do some sort of work to be able to work your way to salvation. Are you familiar with that with that particular uh, discrepancy? Yeah, that was probably one of the biggest issues with something like the Latin Vulgate is that it have you must do penance instead of you must repent. And penance creates the issue of works righteousness, that I must do something to be saved. I must say an X amount of Hail Marys or Our Father or give a certain amount or do a certain pilgrimage. And if I do X, Y, and Z, then perhaps God will show grace to me. Repentance, on the other hand, is a gift from God. Second Timothy 2.25 says that God must grant repentance. It's a gift from him. It is an act of grace that we can repent. Repentance is turning from our sins and trusting completely and totally in Jesus for salvation. Penance says you must do. Repentance says God has done. And there's a massive difference. And if we get that wrong, if we have I must do something to be saved, we haven't understood the gospel. 
as the gospel is not of any works of righteousness that we have done, but by his own mercy he has saved us, Titus 3.5. So there's a big difference between the, the Vulgate and what came down through the Reformers, and even from the Greek. The Greek would use the term repentance, metanoia in that sense, a turning from and turning to. And isn't it uh, interesting, and I say interesting because I don't want it to be controversial in the sense of uh, an us-against-them or we're right and you're wrong mentality, but uh, for that thousand years, these sorts of traditions grew up in the church, and some of those traditions would still remain today. And there's so much that Protestants have to learn from Catholics because they've been able to sustain for 2,000 years a church lineage, and that's very, very exciting and important for Protestants to understand. Uh, But to recognize that traditions uh, and that teaching that may have been based on something that had an error in it from a a thousand-year Latin version of the Bible, uh, that somehow or other uh, to change from that is an important thing to recognize, uh, that when you have got an identified issue, then somehow or other there has to be some change of heart. It needs to be understood, I guess, that the Roman Catholic Church, as we see it today, has not always had all the exact same doctrines that it has today as it always has. It's developed over time. Uh, you see that especially with the, the Marian doctrines uh, in relation to who is Mary, her sinlessness, and um, even the whole debate now, if she is a co-mediator and all that sort of stuff within Rome. It develops over time. Uh, so throughout the history, even up to the Reformation, you will find godly evangelical men who were a part of the Roman Catholic Church. John Wycliffe, he was a Roman Catholic. Yet if you examine what he preached, you'd say, sounds like you're a good evangelical Protestant. But he was still a part of the Roman church. He was trying to reform it. The biggest problem that comes with something like Rome is if you have the Pope who can speak authoritatively and he is the source of truth, how can you change that without destroying your own doctrine? And that's where Rome's error starts to come out and where Rome starts to have problems is that we cannot speak against ourselves because ultimately it's a system we cannot change. Okay, we've got lots of people trying to get through. Let's take some calls. Let's hear from Juliana in Eden's Landing in Queensland. Hello, Juliana. Welcome along. Oh, hello. Yes, um, I was just inquiring. I'm listening to the program, which is really good. Might be worth turning that radio down in the background, Juliana. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering, um, with the Trinity, I've always had a, a love for the Trinity, and um, we are body, soul, and spirit, right? So and we're made in the image of God. And I wonder, because Jesus is God in the flesh, um, would that be like a, dare I say, a replica? I'm just asking questions. I don't know. I'm not saying it is. I'm asking for some guidance. Um, you know, as we are uh, body, soul and spirit, would God, would the Trinity be God the Father and you've got the Holy Spirit, which is spirit, Jesus in the flesh um, and uh, God the Father, um, that would be body. I always find there are lots of uh, what we'd call metaphors or analogies Mm -hmm. that we try to understand uh, the Trinity and uh, God being incomprehensible, has left this a little bit open and complicated for us. But sometimes people try to describe the Trinity as just like uh, as we as humans, body, soul and spirit. Or sometimes people like to talk about 
steam and water and ice. And they talk about, isn't God a little bit like the different ways that we might see water? Uh, But there is something very special and incomprehensible about God and the Trinity. But yes, God has revealed himself in the perfect expression. You'll know that Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Jesus was God incarnate, uh, born of the Virgin and Uh, He was uh, the perfect expression of God, who God is. Uh, So let's, uh, any thoughts to add to that, uh, Josh? Otherwise, we'll get carried away on a Trinity conversation, and uh, we want to talk some more about the uh, the Reformation. It's very hard to, uh, I guess, find those metaphors and analogies to how to describe the Trinity. You know, the Bible talks about to what should we compare God to? And the answer is nothing. And then we bring up, like, the clover or the light or the water or even uh, body, soul, and uh, spirit. And the danger is that oftentimes our analogies will fall down at some point. Uh, so the body, soul, and spirit, the, the danger with that is that we can fall into what's called sabellianism or modalism because you do not have the body being separate from the spirit and the spirit being separate from the soul. You have it all as one. Uh, and that's not the biblical view of the Trinity. The biblical view of the Trinity is you have one God but three distinct persons who are separate from each other yet united to each other. So we've got to be careful in that sense. Uh, I guess the best thing I could do is recommend a couple of resources uh, the book The Forgotten Trinity by James White is probably one of the best books on it. A friend of mine, Glenn Scrivener, wrote a book called 321, and it shows how the Trinity is actually the basis of the gospel. Uh, those books are available at Christian bookstores, and I'd encourage you to get The Forgotten Trinity and 321. Great introductions to understanding this grand doctrine. Thank you so much to Juliana from Eden's Landing in Queensland. Let's hear from Robin in Victoria. Hello, Robin. Welcome along. Are you with us, Robin? Robin's all over the country that like to call us. Uh, Robin uh, didn't get through this time. You might like to try and call us back. Let's hear from Michael in Ararat in Victoria. Hello, Michael. Are you with us, Michael? No, Michael, uh, you might like to call us back. 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to join in our conversation. Let's come back to 21st century. 500 years ago, there was a Protestant Reformation. Out of that, uh, it was not all glorious and wonderful. It was messy. There was persecution. There was wars that were fought over the details that we're talking about today. Uh, In the 21st century, Josh, you're on the streets. People who have been uh, born into families, some of them Catholic families, some of them Protestant families, some of them no religion at all. Uh, What sort of uh, response do you get from people when you start to deliver this message of the gospel, this good news that comes with such a messy history? How do you get a response from people? Well, it varies. Ultimately, salvation is a work of God. Um, John chapter 10 tells us the sheep hear his voice and they come. So when we preach, we know that God's going to work and God's going to bless the preaching of his word, that no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. So I stand up with that confidence and I preach and I'll just declare the word of God, I'll declare the gospel, knowing that God will supernaturally take that and use it for his uh, good pleasure. And oftentimes we see a variety of responses. Even the Apostle Paul saw that in Acts 17 when he preached. You see some people who say, you're out of your mind, you're a nut job. You see other people say, hmm, I want to think more about this. Can I find more information? And then you find those who say, I believe. So our job is merely to proclaim. We'll see a variety of responses, but we know it's God who brings the increase. So our job is just to be faithful to declare the full counsel of God. And when someone says, I'll believe, they're responding in a positive way to this message of the gospel. And as complicated as it may be with a 2,000-year history, you know, as the person who delivered that message, 
that God already has his hand on that person, that he has drawn that person and has opened their understanding to be able to believe, uh, then the complications, there are complications that happen for that person as they try to find their feet and what all of this means. Oh, absolutely. Uh, we've got a messy history. <laughs> that's, that's the problem. We have a messy history because we have a church made up of sinful people. We have a church made up of those who've been rescued by Jesus that are still finding their way, still live in the world. And uh, as the Baptist Confession states, that churches are a mixture of truth and error. Some have departed completely from the faith, but some have that mixture, but the truth of the Scripture is still there. So you'll find people have the complication. That's why we have to keep pushing back saying, go with what the Bible says. Go with what God's Word says. Because man will fail you. Man will let you down. But the Scripture is inerrant. It's infallible. It doesn't contain any errors. It's perfect in all that it addresses go with the Word of God and test everything by it. And, of course, with that comes the idea of modern reformation, that reformation can happen today in people's lives individually, in their local church, in their community, in their city, in the nation, because we have access to the Scriptures. And that's what has has happened and is affirmed, isn't it? Because uh, these things can happen today. Well, a person who gets gripped by the Spirit of God and starts to read the Word of God is going to experience a massive reformation in their own personal life. If they don't experience that reformation, that turning, you have to wonder if the Spirit of God's really been at work. And our hope and our prayer is that as the Word of God continues to march on in our society, that our nations and the nations of the earth will have a reformation, that they will come to the Lord, that we'd see Psalm 72 fulfilled, you know, the desert tribes bowing before Christ and Christ's dominion spreading from sea to sea. We want to see that. We want to see the glory of Jesus spread where it covers the earth as the water covers the sea. But that's only going to happen when people start returning to the word of God as its authority, believing it as Christians, but also preaching and proclaiming it as authoritative. I just want to put a line under any more calls. We won't be able to take any more calls. Just coming down to this last few minutes of our conversation, Josh, and I don't want to miss the opportunity to hear about open-air campaigners because this is an, an organisation with a long history here in Australia and you are obviously on the lookout for more people who will be brave enough to have enough courage and enough conviction to be able to be on the streets, whether it's in your city or whether it's in their city or town anywhere around the country. Uh, how do you actually talk to people who might be thinking, I'd like to join this open-air campaigners group? We're always on the lookout for more workers. Uh, the workers are indeed few. Uh, so if someone has a, a passion for evangelism, now we don't just do open-air preaching. We, we will do things in schools, in churches, basically wherever and whenever we get an opportunity. If that means sitting in the gutter, telling someone about Jesus, we'll do it. If it means standing before a thousand people at an event, we'll do it. We'll, we'll go wherever God opens the door. If someone wants to get involved or find out more, visit our website, oac.org.au. That's oac.org.au. If you go there, hit the Contact Us button. I'm in Queensland. Uh, get in touch with me or whatever state you're in, and we will see what we can do to help inspire you and encourage you and equip you for the work of evangelism. Uh, this inspiration and encouragement and equipping is one of the motives that someone will have when they want to join open-air campaigners. It's important to be uh, linked together in some form of network, whether that's a formal a linking or whether it's an informal way of linking, but, but being linked is an important part of staying strong. Oh, it's, it's, it's much more encouraging when you've got someone with you. Uh, I've done evangelism by myself. It's a lot harder. But if you have someone linking in with you and fellowshipping with you, or even if they're just there praying for you, it really helps. It, it encourages you. It motivates you. There's a reason Jesus sent them out two by two. 
Well, some people will say, well, I'm happy to share my faith one-on-one. I'm not sure I need to be part of a bigger group, but uh, an association with the bigger group uh, also keeps you in the loop for uh, new initiatives and uh, for new equipping opportunities. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, if you're doing one-on-one by yourself, rock on to the glory of God. Keep going. Do as much as you can for Jesus. But if you come and join a bigger group, you'll find more opportunities. We'll encourage each other. Iron will sharpen iron and will provoke each other unto good works. And, of course, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation is coming up on the 31st of October. Does an organisation like Open Air Campaigners give any special attention to an anniversary like that? Is there any special focus that you'll have on the streets, whether that's in Queensland or other chapters of Open Air Campaigners around the country? Is it a special time? There's there's nothing set as a special event as we're so busy doing gospel work as our normal procedure, but uh, we will no doubt mention it. So, for instance, the Open Air I've used it as a hook to say, do you know what's happened this year, 500 years ago sort of thing? And people have been intrigued by that. And, you know, there's plenty of gospel opportunities to use the Reformation uh, as, a, as a tool to share the gospel. There's a book called The Freedom Movement. It's a little booklet, well worth getting. Uh, it's designed to present the gospel. Uh, the Wandering Bookseller in Australia has them. Uh, grab them, read them, give them away to people and use this Reformation for the advancement of the glory of Jesus. Let's see a new Reformation. Uh, You mentioned the website for Open Air Campaigners. It's oac.org.au. Correct. Uh, oac.org.au. How easy is that to remember for Open Air Campaigners? Josh Williamson, it just has been a great pleasure having you in the studio today and uh, always love talking to you about issues to do with evangelism and when we can link that with an historic opportunity to talk about the Reformation, it has been outstanding. Thank you so much for being with us on 2020. Thank you for having me. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.